You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor here and one of the co-founders, actually. And today I have with me changing the order of how I say that, which now makes me feel like I did the whole thing left-handed, but okay, we're going to keep going. Uh, Siobhan Montoya-Lavender, co-founder of Thanks a Ton. Hey, Siobhan. Hey, how's it going? It's good. Trying to break that path dependency a little bit, you know, get a little loose with it. Uh, Asa Kamer, producer of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Hey, Asa. Hi, everyone. Hey, we have an alumnus coming back here, Dr. Marcus Extavor, XPRIZE Chief Scientist and EVP of Energy and Climate over there. Hey, Marcus. Hey, what's up? Good to be here. Yeah, it was a better part of a year since you've been been here. I think we did one right when XPRIZE just started getting into carbon removal or thereabouts. That sounds right. I'm just coming out of the COVID sort of time warp where you can't, I can't remember exactly when anything was. I'm starting to get my calendar back, but sometime in the last year, I think it sounds right to me. Is there an expectation that one is going to get that back? I think that it just all blends together for two something years. I'm going to keep saying it as if it will happen so that maybe that it, maybe it will, but I can't say for sure. <laughs> uh, that's my hope anyway well you're traveling around now at least you were you were a hard person to schedule <clears throat> because you've been bopping around going to different climate tech events doing different carbon removal stuff how's that yes been? it's been good it's been really good i mean uh my family has noticed too that i'm like away again after being home every day for a really long time which has been sweet but yes i had the opportunity to go to a couple of events the first time i really went anywhere i think was in april that was the first time i went to a conference uh maybe it was may the point is it was a conference and I had just forgotten like, oh yeah, it's nice to get into a room with other people that care about your thing too and talk to them. And you can talk to so many people at once or like twos and threes and you don't have to schedule it and they're just sort of hanging out. So yes, I've had a chance to be out there a little bit and a couple other meetings that I get to go to this year, including the COP meeting, which will be, I think, wild and wonderful as it always is. I like the optimism, <laughs> wild and wonderful. You just trying to get a free scuba diving trip out of it or what? Yeah. It's funny, like when you work in a near tech, I think there's an assumption that like, of course, everybody dives. I got nothing against the water. I would love to dive. I've never dived once. I've never put on scuba gear. I don't know what that, I don't know how to do that. And I know that you can really mess it up if you don't do it right. So I would love to say, yeah, I'm going diving in the Red Sea, but in practice, I'll be lucky for maybe a little, a little boat tour or maybe well, just I like the honesty, maybe just some swimming. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that stereotype that tech people were into to scuba diving. I may have just made it up, but I think, <laughs> look, with, with full respect to anybody that's into diving, diving is sometimes a plaything of wealthy people. And we know that the playthings of wealthy people are catnip or tech types sometimes. <laughs> so I've come across more than an inordinate number of people that are into diving. And uh, I don't know, just to get like, this is just me and my own BS, but sometimes I like to forcefully point out that like, I'm not necessarily part of the club in that way if it's a privilege thing. And so, yes, I'm getting a little sensitive about it, but yeah. So it's not like I'm going to yell at somebody, no, I'm not going diving, but yes, if the assumption is we're all divers, because why wouldn't you be? Then that's okay to say, well, you know, actually I'm afraid of the water or no, I've never learned that or whatever the case may be. That wasn't offered as an extracurricular at my school. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Mine either. <laughs> and I hated swimming lessons for the record. Let's just get that out of the way. That's funny. I've never associated that, but I guess that is kind of a, it is kind of a richy kind of hobby. I don't know. It could just be in my head. I'm sensitive to that kind of thing. 
And let me just say too, it seems like the most amazing thing. Would I like to get under the water and look at beautiful coral and other sea creatures? I absolutely would. So uh, maybe I should just stop complaining and figure it out. <laughs> I mean, I was just looking for an easy joke too. If you guys were, because they only <laughs> ever have cop in places you would want to go, really, yeah. it seems. So I was like, wherever it was, there was a joke coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, yeah. I, uh, it's in Sharm el Sheikh, which I know about as. I think it's a famous resort city in the region mm-hmm. where people nearby go for vacation if they can. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm the planning and the planning is chaotic. It's more chaotic than usual, as far as I can tell this year, but it's in a beautiful place. So I'm assuming there'll be some really interesting and fun things to do in between hotel conference rooms and uh, badging and that kind of thing, which is the usual cop experience. Have you been before? I have been a couple of times. Yeah. What's it like? Um, COP is like a music festival or like, I don't know, fashion week. Fashion week isn't a thing. It's a 50 different things all happening in the same city at the same time. Hmm. And there might be one official opening ceremony of fashion week. I've never been to fashion week. So this is what I heard. <laughs> um, so like often people are like, you know, are I going to COP or should I speak at COP or is it worth it to go? And I'll usually say, well, there are a bunch of different events happening. And if those events seem interesting, then you should check it out. My experience is that it's a really great opportunity to meet a lot of people in a short time from, especially coming from North America, from places that we don't necessarily get to or whole communities that we aren't necessarily a part of, depending on. So meeting people and increasingly COP has become not just a place where the climate scientists get together or climate scientists and international negotiators get together to work on treaties. That still happens. And there's a process for that. And there's a process for sharing scientific results and having them blessed. But now this whole festival of side events, the NGOs, the governments, the investors, the companies, the citizen groups have all organized their own things, sort of satellite meetings near COP. And that's part of COP now. Frankly, that's where I'll spend most of my time is at interesting side events that are a lot more accessible to people um, if you don't have the official UN accreditation. But a lot of interesting stuff goes on, especially now that climate has become more interesting to policy and business communities. I think in years past, they weren't really hanging around. The first COP I went to was Paris in 2015. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So you'll have a, a good kind of barometer to sense out what that was like versus this coming year. That's right. That's right. Last thing maybe I'll say is uh, there, there is sort of a rhythm to the negotiations on different articles. So we had Paris Agreement. Last year, one of the big areas of focus was Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. This year, I think, is considered to be more of a down year in the sense that there aren't massive pieces that are anticipated to be moved forward to work out details of various agreements. So the, the, the COPs go in a cycle is what I'm trying to say, is that some COPs are considered more noteworthy or consequential than others. But you sort of never know until after the fact and what, what actually happens, what the mood is, what is actually achieved at the negotiating table from the treaty treaty side of things. But I mean, I'm looking forward to COP as a conference where I'll get to meet a lot of climate people that I don't normally get to meet, probably from organizations I don't normally get to interact with. And I'm especially excited that this is the first African COP. It's in Egypt. And I'm curious to see how many people, how many actual Africans are able to attend from other parts of the continent. Um, We'll see. It'll be very telling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, so I'm like at these, at these conferences you're going to like, how much do you lead in with like the science guy versus like the, I'm, I have the investment business side dialed in, like, how do you kind of present at these? Cause I feel like you have your, your feet in a lot of different corners there. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that was a compliment. I sort of tried to shape my professional life that way. At a meeting like this, I'll typically, I really look for places where people are talking about innovation. And as somebody that thinks that I work near and on innovation regularly, it might sound funny to go looking for that, but it's a good reminder that innovation is not a normal topic at most just professional gatherings necessarily. Maybe it's a small topic, whereas for me, it's sort of my main thing. I think I'm most effective at a place like this, not representing that I'm an active publishing climate scientist because I'm not, but I'm more like somebody who understands the science very well because I speak that language and I'm good at translating it into other fields. So I sort of straddle the, I understand innovation from the tech and the, and the policy and the business and the science perspective. And I can help you do that thing you're trying to do, or maybe we could work together to do a thing together. So that's, I think, where I could be most effective personally. Yeah, I think bridging the gap is in a really, a really essential role. Yeah, but um, I, I hope so. I, I, collaboration, you know, if we're, we're going to collaborate, then we need people like that bridging the gap and, and making the communication flow. Totally agree. I mean, sometimes when, it, you know, collaborations I've been involved in, you need to make sure you align on the high vision, but then also you just need to make sure the basics, like you're speaking the same language, literally when you use this word, does the other party understand it in the same way? Well, that's something we're like, we're not great at in climate in general. Like the lexicon of climate is so muddled, is so complex. I also don't know if you follow Rory Jacobson from um, Carbon 180, but he recently asked this question about language in different, like how do you say CDR versus CCS in various languages? And since nobody had weighed in on Spanish and I live in Mexico and I'm married to a Latino and we we live here and, and have our life in Spanish, I weighed in and I was just like, man, like no language has this down. Like we're all just confusing ourselves. Um, and it doesn't matter what language you speak, like nobody gets the difference between CDR and CCS. There's not good terminology. Director capture versus point source capture confuses people. Like we really have not nailed down the lexicon yet. Preach. Uh, I totally agree. And I feel like I'm personally out of ideas on how to, how to, uh, how to help. I take, I've been part of taking a few swings at this, either trying to sort of elucidate language and bring to the surface phrases people are using, or to maybe gently try to streamline it and say, you know what, how about we just all agree on this one and not that one. I can't say that they've really been successful. And I mean, on the one hand, you know, more people are coming into the, whether it's carbon removal or carbon management, there goes another one of those phrases, you know, another bigger thing, (laughs) or just climate solutions. I was trying not to say climate tech, but maybe I'll just say climate, you know, the space is growing. Great. That means new people are coming in. Great. But new people are going to come in with the same questions that every new person to any new field does. Uh, They're stumbling over the words too, just like we are, just like everyone is a little bit. So I think we're muddling along and I don't, I don't know. I'm curious what you all think, but do you think it's really holding the space back or is it more like a minor annoyance? I'm not sure I know the answer, but what do you think? I don't know that I have a clear answer either. Either of you guys got a stab at that. I can't like, I definitely think it confuses people. And so that's holding us back to a degree, but I also don't have like a clear solution. And I'm also like, well, how confused are you? Because once I just tell you the difference between CDR and CCS, then we can just move on, right? It's just, um, you have to remember that one kind of, that one term and then move on. I just, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky one. It's definitely an existential question. I think for me, a lot of the people who don't work in climate that I talk to about this stuff, like the first barrier isn't like carbon capture versus carbon removal. It's just that people are like, oh, climate change is scary. I don't want to talk about it or not even I don't want to talk about it, but like I don't even necessarily know how to enter this conversation. 
So I almost feel like there's, I mean, it depends who your audience is. I think for like various climate professionals and people you probably meet at COP, like they are probably definitely getting into the CDR versus CCS and those kind of lexicon questions that like it does become really important, but that's probably a small minority of actual people in the world that are like involved. But I think for me, maybe just who I'm talking to, but when I try to get into like, oh, I've been working on carbon removal. It's so interesting. It's like, ooh, like you can just feel people tense up when you say climate change. Like people don't want to think about it because they're told it's the end of the world. And who wants to think about that? I was in Europe last week, which was a treat. And I gave a talk to a room of maybe like 50 people. And they were maybe 10% from North America and the rest really from Europe. And I started the talk. It was about sort of climate solutions, but I did talk about CDR a bit. And I started by saying, Show of hands, you know, please be honest. We're all friends here. Have you heard of the phrase carbon removal? And do you think you know what that means? And I was really surprised to see almost all the hands go up. Hmm. I, I just, it's funny, this conversation is making me remember. I won't know any names, but I remember thinking like, no way. There's no way. <laughs> I, look, they were, it's extremely educated and resourceful group, but I just thought, really? You're like, well, name three methodologies then. Yes, I didn't. I, I bit my tongue. <laughs> True or false? I bit my tongue, but I just thought, well, I had two thoughts. One was, wow, I'm, that's cool. Great. You know, word spreading. But a part of me thought like, come on, that, I mean, even I get a dark against myself sometimes about, should we call it capture or should we not call it capture? Is it a form of mitigate, you know, these kind of things that you're probably familiar with? So I don't know. But in any case, I mean, Words are confusing, but there's no doubt the word is getting out. At least some word is getting out. Some word is getting out. And as long as I feel like the words aren't like, we're not gatekeeping with them, you know, I worry about right. that a bit. Right. Like, is this, this is a term that's gatekeeping. And I always try to think like, what are activist circles using? Yeah. And can we yeah. cater to that lexicon? Yeah. And I wonder like, what do you think is like, um, you know, coming from kind of more of the investment side, talk to us about like what you see as the landscape and investment. What are they talking about? And what are... What are key terms and like buzzwords in investment when it comes to climate tech? Sure. I'd say sort of more, I'll start more broad and then maybe we can drill yes. down back down into sort of the CDR part of the world. It definitely seems to me like there's a huge influx of capital. So there's just more money available and more people wanting to invest in the area. The public markets, you know, meaning like stocks and bonds have kind of cooled off over the last eight months. So people with the money aren't feeling as exuberant maybe as they were six months ago. But in general, like there definitely seems to be a big boom in the let's invest in technologies and solutions relevant to climate change or an energy transition. And I think, you know, I'm asking myself why that was, because you might you might know that there was another boom like this in the late 2000s. Sorry, the, yeah, the late 2000s and into the 2010s, right up through the financial crisis. And a lot of people were exuberant about green energy or clean tech, they called it. And a lot of investors lost a lot of money because a lot of those clean tech companies did not take over the world in the 2000s, the way people thought. And then the money kind of migrated elsewhere, but it's coming back. And so, you know, a lot of people in the community are benefiting. It doesn't just go to startups. It goes all kinds of places. Startups spend money all over the place. So I think people are coming in a little bit more eyes wide open this time about the way you make money in this area is probably not the same way you make money in things like media or software mm-hmm. or or SaaS, which has come to dominate Silicon Valley. Those are, they generally take a little less upfront money and they take shorter time to mature. And that's the dream if you're an investor, because you get your money back and you think you're going to get a lot more than you put in. But for cli- a lot of climate solutions, they are, people are exuberant. They see the 
the climate has transcended the culture and the political conversation now. It's not just scientists and activists talking about it. It's now. I mean, John Kerry is the U.S. climate envoy. Mark Carney used to be the governor of the Bank of England and the governor of the Bank of Canada. And now he's an international climate finance leader. I mean, who would have thought? So people that have careers like those people, just to pick two more senior men on the scene, they are interested in climate. So that signals to a lot of other investors that there's something different or more real this time. People are still looking for where can I put my money in and get money out? So I think the idea of investing, because it's a good idea, I'm always a little suspicious of that motive versus at least I can understand the profit motive. And I feel like no one's hiding anything. We can argue about whether it's the most productive. So that's another question. Like, is it investable? Can you make money? But there's definitely an exuberance. There's definitely more capital. There are more people starting funds and more people trying to invest in stuff. Some great people to ask too would be startup founders. Like, how are they, how are they perceiving this from the other side of things? Lots of people like to announce, I've raised a lot of money. That's cool and exciting. But then, you know, was that money invested into a group that could really use it and do something with it over time? That's the more painstaking thing to check on, but definitely worth it. So, I mean, happy, happy to spend more time, but overall, things are positive. People are excited. A lot of people that don't normally think about the space are getting curious and asking questions and considering dipping in their toes. And that includes people that don't normally care about technology or climate at all, which are like banks, pension funds, insurance companies. They aren't typically part of this conversation, but they're starting to indicate that maybe some of them are kind of interested. And that's to me pretty interesting. Do you see any other big levers we can pull to get to gigaton scale? How does one even begin to do such a thing? Yeah, I think growing the community is still really important. I mean, conversations like this hopefully will maybe inspire people to take more action and, and do more in their own ways to help grow the community. There still aren't enough people working on climate solutions in all walks of life, in different companies, in different aspects of society, different countries. I don't think climate solutions generally are going to be a few gadgets delivered by a small group of people and then spread. So like iPhone, for instance, not picking on iPhone, but you know, small group of people develop a product, it catches fire, so to speak, and then spreads around the world. I have a hypothesis that climate solutions are going to be a lot more diverse, meaning of various types. I think by definition, if they're going to reach scale, they have to be developed in more than one place. I'm going to just sidestep the whole sort of geopolitical battle for technology supremacy and who gets to develop and export. Uh, it's a real thing, but I, uh, I just want to keep my mind free of that before we <laughs> go there. So I think growing the community, and it doesn't mean more engineers per se. I'm an engineer. I like engineers. But what I'm trying to say is there are a lot of different roles to play for all kinds of different people. And I think the community is actually still pretty small. Like I'll put this in context. The number of people working on what I would call climate solutions, never mind technology-oriented climate solutions, inside of the broader climate community is small. I think the climate solutions crowd is still small. The majority of people in the climate conversation are focused on activism, science, or developing adaptation-oriented solutions, which are all more than needed. But the number of people saying, wait a minute, I have a thing that I think can actively be added to our system and help. That's what I, that's my definition of a climate solution. It's still a relatively small thing, just like the idea that innovation could be relevant to climate change, I think is still a newer idea. So I'd love to grow that idea. 
Yeah. Well, I think you're exactly right about the community needing to grow. What about the investment community? What about like, you know, we talk about like, who's at the table. We're trying to create this massive, massive industry, climate tech in general and carbon removal specifically, trying to create this massive industry within a capitalist framework. Mm -hmm. And so we have investors coming in. Are we seeing diversity investors? Are we seeing geographic diversity? Are we seeing racial diversity? Are we seeing enough to kind of meet the challenge that is getting enough funding to get this off the ground, not just in the US, not just in SFA area, which mm-hmm. I love, of course, but all over the world. And and where where's the trick to kind of unlocking that potential and that capital? Excellent questions. There were a bunch of them, but I think the answer to a lot of them was no. Are, are we seeing, are there enough different types of investors? No. Are there enough founders from unrepresented groups? No. Fund managers from underrepresented groups? No. Funds growing around the world? No. So in the same way that the climate science history, a huge fraction of a lot of amazing climate science work was done in the United States and Europe, specifically coastal United States and Western Europe. Nothing wrong with those regions, of course, or people that work there and live there. I live in LA and I'm from Toronto. Okay. So in my opinion, like when I was sort of getting into the climate thing as a graduate student in, I guess, like the late 2000s, I was thinking, hmm, so if this is really going to be a topic of global importance, we probably need more than England, France, Sweden, and United States to care about this. Like it just won't work just from a geopolitical level. It'll sound like another North versus South colonial you know, schism. And that that won't work for all kinds of reasons that are way bigger than climate. So I still think that in the investment landscape, I think there are two big, big, big holes. One is there aren't enough women and underrepresented minorities in the capital system. Why do we care? Expand the pot of people, better ideas, more ideas, but also equity. I think if climate is seen as something that's for people, then it to some extent needs to be by people. I know that's extremely high level and trite, but I think it's also, there's some truth there. The more that it doesn't look like a club for bros or tech bros taking over climate, the more it will be seen as, you know, like a lot of activists use phrases like false solution or scam to describe a lot of climate technologies. Okay. I might agree or disagree with some of those characterizations, but the point is the more it looks like an exclusive plaything of a certain part of the world, just the harder it will be to digest. The other thing that's missing is the type of money or the color of money. Most investors in climate tech, there's a missing thing in the color of money. There's a lot of early stage money, but there's not a lot of capital for like, okay, let's build a factory or let's deploy this on thousands of hectares or let's work this up and down the coast or let's really do a deep ocean project or let's really do a death, like whatever scale. And I know I'm using sort of carbon removal type of locations, but just think of any climate oriented solution. It could be water, waste, metals, food, whatever. Getting it big usually probably involves manufacturing. It usually probably involves getting to the place where you can take out a loan from the bank. You know, remember this is how most businesses fund themselves, not venture capital. They they go to the bank and get a loan. You forget that sometimes, I, but you're no, right. That's sometimes right. I forget that. I'm we like, well, isn't it just a series sure. A and then you're done? <laughs> that's right. right. Our technologies are considered so risky that it's a joke for the bank to be consider giving you a loan. We have to have this whole other type of risky capital that we call VC or angels or grants or other things to invest in them, to get them to the point where maybe you could walk into, I don't know, Bank of America and say, can I have a business loan? 
for my water treatment technology or my farming technology. And they'd say, okay, we'll consider it. But anyway, so capital, the later stage. And I think the reason there's a gap is that it starts to look less like the things technology people are familiar with. And it starts to look more like the things that banks and insurance companies and pension funds and the institutional investors, so to speak, university endowments that they are familiar with. I was just speaking to somebody the other day about like, these two worlds are kind of inching towards each other. The pension funds and banks are starting to take an interest in climate tech and climate solutions. And the tech community has been yelling at them for years. Like, you need to fund us, you need to fund us. But I think they are inching toward each other. And I think that'll be a really interesting unlock if we could get to a place where we can speak the same language, people can understand projects, we get over the language that we were speaking about before, and we can say like, okay, this is a 500 million euro project or a $500 million project or a $2 billion project. What does that look like? How do we set it up? How do we do everything from community engagement through to permitting, through to engineering and building and blah, 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 whatever's required. So that's what's needed to get to scale. And that's a type of money that's really missing from the, from the ecosystem right now. So if anyone out there has that, there's a, there's a warm audience waiting for it. I'm curious why part of it is you know, chicken and egg here for sure. If there were more carbon removal companies that were medium and late stage, you know, deserving of this level of low risk money, it would exist. The market would just like, here it is. Here's the money that you need to grow because it looks safe and profitable. And I'm wondering too, if part of this is because so much of carbon removal is so hardware focused. And I think early stage money has been spoiled to some extent by software where they're expecting 10 years, you know, orders of magnitude of growth, which is way easier to do in a digital environment than a physical one. I think maybe mm -hmm. Marcus, you can disabuse me of that notion. If you don't think that's true, do you think any parts of that that I'm saying make sense or is there more to it than that? Surely there must be. I think you are onto something and I think I agree with you. So I got invited to an investor meeting earlier in the year, um, which was, you know, I'm not exactly an investor, but I guess I think about it and, you know, at XPRIZE we're philanthropic. So we're, we're giving away money. So we're kind of like investors in a way, if you squint. Point is, I was in a room with other real commercial investors, and the topic was like, what's wrong with climate tech investing? And how do we not make this like the bust that was clean tech 1.0? And one of the themes that came out was, yes, these technologies, these solutions, whether it's agriculture or a machine, they rely on the physical world. What is it? Atoms, not bits, some people say. Like a good, good phrase. It's a physical object or it relies on the physical critical processes like biology and chemistry, and those are messy and water, and, and they are therefore more expensive and harder to just replicate and whip up. So therefore, all the things you said are true. Like it takes more money, it takes more patience up front. And most venture capitalists got to their position, there's a all a million ways, but a very common way is a person was part of a successful startup, they had some kind of exit. They got a pile of money through that exit and they decided, you know what I could do? I can help other startups in this path with this bag of money I have. And they start a fund. And most people that have had that path have gone through software. So they're familiar with software and I love software. It's an incredible thing, but it's not quite, the, the challenges aren't quite there. So I think there's that, but I think there's one other, there's one other thing. And that is that, you know, you were saying, Ross, like if, if there were all these investable companies at that scale, the market would just come toward them. I think two things. One, there just aren't that many companies that have reached that scale yet. But two, there is, I think, kind of a market failure. Like somebody has to change their behavior to fill in that gap. 
either the technology or the solution companies need to sort of change how they operate to make themselves look like what, let's say, the banks or the pension companies recognize, or the pension funds and the banks need to sort of adjust their thinking and sort of crawl a little deeper down into this sort of technology risk area to, to figure to figure it out. So I think I think we actually are at a moment where there's sort of like something structural is slightly broken. And it's not like, I don't want to phrase this as if it's a staring contest, but something's got to give. Somebody has to change their behavior a little bit to, to decide, you know what, I'm going to take on slightly more risk and just go into that gap and fill it. Who's farthest along in terms of capitalization? Is it carbon engineering or Climeworks? I feel like they're the easy ones to think of, but who Let's funded see. their latest rounds? Were they sure. more established well, like private equity? In the carbon removal world, yeah. So Climeworks, uh, for, I might get some details wrong, but we can look them up. So Climeworks famously raised a $600 million or maybe 600 million euro round. Yeah, that's that typically not this year. types of money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's probably money they raised last year or over the last couple of years and they announced it this year. I forget who the lead investors were. I think some of that might've been advanced purchase agreements. I know Swiss Re was involved with the deal with them, but I'm not sure if they're part of the 600. I don't know for sure. I should actually know. I don't know if they've published who all their investors were. I'd be shocked if it was all just venture investors, but maybe, you know, like there are VCs throwing millions of hundreds of millions of dollars at like fusion companies right now. So, and there are some VCs with enormous assets under management. So the idea of a hundred million, $200 million venture round is not insane from like from a handful of investors. Carbon engineering, I don't know this for sure, but I believe they've gone through a slightly different route. Like the, the thing they're building in, in southern US is financed by BHP, Occidental Petroleum, and Chevron. And I don't know this, it's just Marcus speculating. But if I had to guess, I would say it's not entirely a venture deal. It's probably like somebody owns the project, somebody's the project developer, somebody owns the technology. In other words, it starts to look like a real engineering project, mm-hmm. not a venture project. Like that's how you build a factory, that's how you build a bridge, that's how you build a fish canning factory. You know, somebody owns the IP, somebody owns the project, somebody finances the whole project. You agree to split the revenues X, Y, Z, and away you go. Let's see. Those are two of the sort of most mature, and they also have you know installations in the ground. But carbon engineering is another one. They do mineralization, a lot of carbon utilization in that path, but they're quite along. They're they're quite far along. They've raised several venture rounds. I think they're sort of into the we want investors that can help us grow, not just write us checks around. You know, people call that strategic investing. Like, how can you help us? You know, we're past the point where we figured out how to raise money. We can't raise money. Now we need to raise the right type of money with the right partners to help us go to places we don't know how to go ourselves. I just bring that up because they're one of the more mature companies out there. Are any of these companies going to become public companies so that you could buy their shares on, you know, Ally? Ally Bank is what I use to buy basic stocks here and there. So I don't, I, I don't work for them. I don't know why I brought up their name, but anyway, <laughs> whatever, whatever things people use to buy and sell <laughs> stocks, right? Would one of these companies be listed there? I'm not sure. But I, yeah, back to your question. I think, I definitely think it's the bias of software and the wild, incredible success of the software world influences the way we think about how to nurture companies. I'll close by saying I, I was trying to explain how I saw the investment landscape to a person, a stranger that I met. And he, and he says, oh, well, I work in infrastructure. And I don't know anything about climate or any of this stuff. But what you just described sounds like infrastructure to me. Go tell all your friends that what you need to do is organize the projects like they're infrastructure projects, like railways or bridges or hospitals or pieces of public infrastructure. There's a whole other way to finance those things. I wish I was smart enough to know what that means exactly. I haven't sort of figured out and researched that, but 
it sounded like a credible tip. And I've heard a couple of other people allude to things like this, like, hmm, you should look at infrastructure models if you really want to scale these climate solutions. So maybe somebody out there already knows what that means, but it's like on my list of things to try to research and learn about. Yeah, try to figure it out. So when you're talking about like, that's interesting that you point to like infrastructure projects or a different kind of lens and pathway to finance. And I think that's interesting that you brought up the idea of like, it's kind of a steering contest and one side has to kind of mold sufficiently to adapt with the other side's approach. Is this something that needs to happen now? Or like Ross has brought up, like you've been talking, is it just that, do we still just need to rely on the early stage, the VC funding, the grants funding? Is that still where like most of climate tech is right now? Or do we need to be going big and really looking at these kind of more infrastructural changes to how we finance major projects? I think it's the second one. So I believe where climate tech is and where climate solutions investing is now looks closer to what the traditional tech world knows and understands and and is used to great success, venture capital, angel investing, relying on some public grants, but, you know, VC, and they use phrases like series A, series B, series C. One piece of jargon that I've learned is people in like, again, the institutional capital world, they refer to all of that world as small cap, meaning mm-hmm. tiny, barely commercial, barely profitable. Maybe they are profitable, more risky, early stage investments, as opposed to something like treasury bonds, a pension fund, your government bond, ETFs, mutual funds, so like sort of more traditional financial stuff. Uh, you can see I'm out of my depth a little bit. Uh, that list all together is just like perfect for a sleep podcast. If you're having trouble <laughs> sleeping, just have Marcus name off some oh my conservative investment opportunities for you. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that plus infrastructure as a model for development. I think those... If we're making I, we're making it sexy, guys. If I can't sleep, I listen to sports talk radio. That puts me right oh. out. But maybe uh, financial press is something. No, but I I really think. Look, if I were a finance person and I wanted to seize on a huge opportunity, I would go from the world of structured finance and figure out how to go towards a technology world. I really think that's the play. Mm-hmm. If you work in private equity, if you understand hedge funds, if you work in a bank, if you understand how pensions work, understand something about the climate world because there's a huge opportunity for you to go finance projects in that world the way you know how to do. You just have to figure, adapt your skills to a climate thing and then get to know some of these technology startups. Um, and the reason I think that is there's a structural problem with venture capital. It's too impatient generally. I'm not the first person to observe this. A lot of people lament, man, if only we didn't have to pay back in seven to 10 years. And if only the expectations for returns weren't so high because the failure rate is so high. And if only... Uh, there were another way. And so venture capital is limited in some ways in in scaling climate solutions. I don't mean misplaced, but I think it's it has broadly recognized the limits. And the question is like, how do you how do you get into that other world? I think it's the other world deciding they want to play. So like if in my little staring contest analogy, I think it's sort of traditional finance that has the biggest opportunity to make a small move. And you know, maybe that's maybe that's happening already. Maybe some people are thinking about it already. I'm sure this is not a novel idea. So I'm sure people are thinking about it. But that's how if I could wave a magic wand or jump into the arena, that's where I would that's where I would jump. How even would they? I've seen some talk of green bonds and things like that. Green bonds also have a reputation of being 
much safer, except if you don't look at the last six months or so. I don't think you'd want to look yeah. at the bond market yeah. so much. But I know they're looking for much more conservative types, well-vetted instruments, mm-hmm. um, things that are maybe only a couple percentage points a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. The real risk here is losing pensions, mm-hmm. losing huge amounts of money, mm-hmm. and just making sure you're beating inflation and making some kind of return. Is that broadly correct? And if so, what kind of investments might appeal to groups like that? So I think what you said is correct. And sometimes we think of, let's say, big finances or maybe a younger version of me thought of that world cartoonishly as a bunch of greedy people sitting on giant piles of gold. Okay. That's how I used to think of it as a child. Now that I like have children and think about I'll retire one day and, you know, do I need to take care of them? Now I think about giant pools of money as yeah, still some of that, but also as like, you know, a tiny fraction of that is actually mine. And I really don't want it to go away because I'm relying on that for something that I really need in my life. In other words, the idea that like a hospital foundation, they really can't lose that money. They really need it to keep facilities open or to, or like the Ontario teachers pension fund. My wife's an Ontario teacher and that happens to be a giant pension fund in the world. That's regular working teachers pensions. They don't want to piss that money away on some risky technology. Okay. To answer your question, I think project finance is something I'm really trying to get smarter on. And I think it's an opportunity. There are many managers, money managers that aren't trying to finance technologies. They're not trying to bet on teams. They're not trying to pick founders. They are baking specific loans to help build specific types of projects. Again, infrastructure like bridges, something that involves a lot of concrete and steel and thousands of workers and many months or years of time and all kinds of different subcontractors. Somebody has to come in and say, we will do the financing. In other words, the loans to make all this happen. We're going to lend money and accept repayment on certain terms. I'm greatly oversimplifying, partly because I don't know all the details, but I'll give an example. The carbon engineering facility that's being put together in the US, there was a project financier that put that project together. Jim McDermott's company, they're called 1.5. They created it kind of just to do that thing. And they were the ones that said, we know how to structure this deal financially between Chevron, BHP, Oxy, and carbon engineering. And we know how to put this deal together in a way that uh, makes sense for everyone. And 1.5 profits off of that arrangement. Their expertise is sort of arranging these complex financial transactions for a big project. And I believe that kind of stuff is pretty commonplace in infrastructure, in agriculture, in manufacturing, in hospitals, and a lot of other parts of life. So I have this notion that maybe people that know how to do that, can that's a place to start. Bond issuances, that's actually over my head. I don't, I don't know how to tell if, what's a good idea or make a recommendation there. But that's, I think, one place. And 1.5 is an example because I feel like I can understand that. Like, okay, somebody kind of put a project together. I can understand what the inputs and outputs are. I can guess how you actually make money doing that. I've heard of one or two other groups trying to do this in the carbon world as project developers or project financiers. And so for me, that's promising because, again, that's not... If I believe this is true, you don't typically see this in the software world, right? The four of us write an app together or a software package. The way we ship it is we put it on the internet or we put it in an app store. We don't need to build a special facility to deliver our service necessarily. And so it's one reason it might not be on the radar of Silicon Valley, but it is more on the radar of other financial centers. And I'm sure there's a whole universe of people that know how to do that. Maybe they can start applying that knowledge to climate solutions. This is with full respect to people that actually work in this area who uh, yeah. actually understand the details. But that's my sense kind of as an outsider coming into it, that there's a big opportunity there. Hmm. What about the opportunity? So 
that sounds like, you know, we're, we're dealing with some, like some founders, people that really understand like, you know, investment in, in structural me- mega projects. What about for like listeners who are like, Hey, I'm interested in, you know, climate tech solutions. I'm, I don't run a VC. I'm not a founder. Yeah. Like where do those people play? Is it, is it policy-based? Is it, is it all about kind of like how we affect government regulation? Like how do those people play in? Yeah. Great. Great question. So I have two different money pathways to suggest, and then some non-finance pathways. So one of them is they say that people of roughly our generation are really into retail investing, you know, buying a couple dollars of a stock here or there or whatever we can afford. And there are all these apps to make it a lot easier. We typically, so one way to do this is to, if you're interested in that kind of thing, consider whether you would start to become active as a shareholder in whatever companies you you like to buy and helping to agitate to steer the company in a direction you think is positive climate-wise. I don't want to be naive, like just because you have two shares of Apple or something doesn't mean you're going to get voting rights at a board meeting. That's not how it works. But sometimes by grouping together or connecting with other you know, regular people, investors who actually have an interest, you might even be able to do things like start to study their public documents. Even if you can't go to a shareholder meeting, you can read like, if you're inclined, read their quarterly uh, reports, if they're a public company, and then write a blog about it. Uh, like, you know what? They say in their strategy, doing this, and I don't think it's right. And I want to encourage them to do this other thing. So that's one way to take active, even as you're a sort of tiny investor. Um, the other money path before we move off of that for a second is, or potentially is uh, regular people often don't have access to investing in early stage startups, or even a lot of financial instruments that accredited investors, which are trained and or wealthy people right, have access yeah, to. For those of the listeners that don't know, to be an accredited investor, you have to have a million dollar net worth or make two hundred over 200,000 as an individual income. That's right. um, and so that's the hurdle. And then if you want to participate, you may take a test, a pretty uh, paternalistic test mm-hmm. to allow you to invest your money um, in that way. That's rel- rel- relatively arbitrary, I would say, in terms of That's other right. other high-risk industries that are, right. are not gate-kept in the same way. Actually, something I don't know is I don't know how those rules vary from country to country, but that is what we're talking about now is the United States rule. It was designed, I believe, after market crashes in 1929 in the 30s, to protect regular people from speculating on stocks. The idea was basically, if you're too poor and dumb, you shouldn't be in the stock market. It's only for wealthy people and smart people. And we need to do this to protect people. And I think there probably is something to that. We saw a little bit of that with like GameStop last year and Cryptomania. On the other hand, there's no doubt that this is exclusionary. But I've had a couple of people tell me that they were trying to make climate solutions or technology companies or the kind of thing we usually talk about in the in, in the VC world, make those accessible to regular people through creating kind of like a new financial product. I don't know if any of those things exist, but I think that would be really interesting. I think there's such a groundswell of interest among people that aren't necessarily quote unquote accredited investors or check those boxes of wealth or expertise or whatever, but are passionate about the topic, want to do something I would love it if there were a way to marry sort of the power of crowdsourcing with the enthusiasm we have in some communities about climate solutions and towards helping people support specific solutions or projects if they want to. I think that could be a huge win. I don't exactly know how to do that, but I think it's a win. So this is another, I'm just putting an idea out there. That it's not mine, but I think it's a good one. 
Yeah, somebody else take, take that ball and run, run with Please it run because with that it. sounds like something I want to participate in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's things like that out there, I'm sure. Through the Jobs Act provisions, uh, you can run Reg CF and Reg A, Reg mm-hmm. A plus raises mm-hmm. that are open and non-accredited. They're uh, mm-hmm. investors harder on companies though. There's a lot more requirements. They're more expensive to start. The amount of money you can raise is a lot more limited, yes. but it does right. allow more participation in a more egalitarian fashion. In some cases, you've, you've protected people out of their best chance at an upside potential for their net worth, which is not good. I'm That's sure right. people have lost their shirts on some of these deals too. That's right. That's exactly uh, right. Has, has anyone, oh, Nori did one of these rounds years ago. Um, we did a, a reg CF round several years ago. Have, have there been any others that you can even think of within carbon removal? I don't know of any. It's funny that I have, you haven't, no one has seen any of it. It wouldn't surprise me if there was some, but it might be that it is tens of thousands of dollars, I think just in lawyer fees, just to get started. So if you're trying to raise money, the small amount of money you can from individual non-accredited investors, your money might be better spent elsewhere with a thin runway. I just have to say one of the redeeming things that I noticed in the the sort of the web three or the crypto world was that the spirit of collective action and pooling resources was very strong. Oh yeah. And a lot of people were trying to, you know, pool their tokens, right? And I know there are a lot of legal hurdles there. Is it a security or not? Blah, blah, blah. But I thought that was really interesting. And I was sort of like, hmm, how can this be applied to climate? How can this be applied to climate? Can it be? Is this the ticket for people to throw $20 towards a project they care about and and then come away with something, even if it's just a good feeling or knowing that they've contributed or, or what? So again, I'm not sure, but um, I think there's something there for sure. And I think, I, I hope that that sentiment and that opportunity doesn't go away. Yeah, I need to think some more about that one. I, I've actually not even thought about this in several years. So, like, how much money could you raise five and ten dollars at a time for a climate project? How much? Ten thousand? I, mean, I guess there was trillion trees, right? They Maybe raised more. a bunch of money in this crowdsource kind of way. Mm. But I wonder if you even have a positive impression of such an endeavor. I don't think I have a negative impression. I could imagine the psychology of there's no risk in executing the task. I have high confidence that if someone says they're going to plant a tree, they could do it. They, I guess they could choose to deceive me, but <laughs> there's no technology risk, not just to put it in those stupid terms, but you know what I mean? Whereas if the four of us say we're going to do this spreading crushed rock over farm fields thing to reduce, reduce a bunch of carbon, you as the person that's going to throw 20 bucks into that, is it going to work? Or is it not going to work? Maybe, maybe you have more questions or maybe it doesn't. It's not a known quantity to you. So. I'm trying to express that maybe there's a barrier to crowdsourcing, but I don't know. I I tend to be optimistic, but I think I think it could work. Like again, the climate thing has crossed over into culture in a way that it never has before. We're that, we're certainly banking on that. I mean, right? we we certainly try to go for the culture angle with a lot of the content I think we make. You know, we're trying to bring in humor and satire yeah. and make it kind of fun and accessible from a culture angle. But I don't. I don't know how much it's crossed over yet. I think it's crossing. Maybe is the. I think it's crossing. I don't it's know. Cro- what do you think, yeah. and Ross? Is it has it crossed yet? Are people like, yes, we get all this climate humor and climate nuance, and we want to be on the in crowd. And I mean, that's I'm the, hoping that's, that's the where we're going. I think the next project should be setting up some sort of contest, like trying to s- deceive Marcus into whether or not you planted a tree. Some sort of contest <laughs> about the best way to lie to Marcus for tree planting. 
I'm too lazy to check. That's the truth. I shouldn't say that. Um, now, yeah, I, 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 offset voluntary carbohydrates. Oh, okay. Okay, there we go. Connected. I, I think it's definitely crossed over. The problem is the first piece of it across has been the world is ending and there's nothing you can do about it. That part. I feel like that is that super successful part that's exactly galvanizing everyone. That's right. Exactly. So that that degenerative meme has crossed over, but it's taken hold. Like I literally think this is the driving force behind 90% of the climate desks that I see at major media outlets. I'm not trying to crap on the media, but I am a little bit. I think uh, you see it in like, you see a lot of fear and anxiety among really young people, right? Like children, teenagers, really young adults. And so I think. I'm hoping that the kind of stuff we're talking about, not the boring finance stuff, but I mean, the idea that solutions are possible, it's up to us. We have the agency to do this. It's achievable with work, those things. The idea that, yes, we screwed up and created this climate problem, but we also have the agency to fix it. That's my, my, that's my personal belief, but I think it's also true. If that idea spreads, or at least is considered or discussed, I think that's a big win. So I'm, I'm hoping that that other part of climate culture or climate makes it into broad culture. I mean, I think it kind of has to uh, for us to have success. So let's make it happen. We, we agree should, on that. We should wrap it here before anyone jumps in with some context that takes away from the, the beauty and the optimism there. <laughs> One of these actually people surely would have jumped in. Uh, Marcus, is there anywhere you want people to go to uh, follow your work? Learn more about the X Prize, even though I'm also glad we gave you a chance to talk about non X Prize things today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> love X Prize. Love talking about climate in general, too, especially solutions. Uh, look at all things X Prize. You can find it at xprize.org. Uh, I try to get on Twitter from time to time. You can find me at X Tempo there. And let me just give an unsolicited shout out to Climate Tech VC, the newsletter, just because I was reading it again today. I have nothing to do with it. But it's a fantastic piece of curation, and everybody should read it. So that's a that's a random un, unsolicited shout out. But I think they're great. Now you're shaming me for like the two unread ones, latest ones I it's have okay. in my inbox. It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> they're they're very good, and I learn something every time I read them. No, but look, I'm I'm just thrilled to have this conversation with you all. Thank you for inviting me, and you know, keep up the good work. Thank you, thanks, Siobhan and Asa for being here as usual. Thanks for listening. If you like what we do here, please give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Send it to a friend and have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com. Follow us on social media. and We will catch you next time.